John 11, verses 17 through 27 and 32 through 44. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Caroline. <clears throat> we were supposed to uh, start the uh, of kind of a fall sermon series through the book of Philippians this morning, <clears throat> but it's been a pretty uniquely challenging week here in Memphis, and so we thought it would be appropriate to uh, pause and at least take some time to lean into that and think about and reflect on how do you respond to such a uniquely painful, brutal, hard week. You know, earlier this week, I was um, meeting with my counselor, just processing how I'm doing, how I'm feeling, how I'm kind of taking it all in. And um, I told him that I, I felt extremely saddened and afraid and burdened and on edge. I find myself just really irritable with my family and kids and... Um, and, and, you know, so, you know, processing this stuff is not usually ever clean. It's pretty messy. And... Um, 
I told him, I said, I know that this isn't true objectively, but I feel like Memphis is scarier. I feel like the streets are more dangerous. And I've heard other people say this. I've talked to some people who've shared similar things. of like, I'm scared to like walk in my neighborhood. I'm scared to like take my kids to the grocery store. Should I like carry protection on me at all times? You know, so I've, I know I'm not alone in that, but I'm telling all this to my counselor. And I, I, I also relayed to him that I have a little bit of a, um, an escape fantasy where I kind of dream about leaving and taking my family to Sweden and buying some farm and like living off the land for the rest of our lives, which if you know anything about my relationship with the land, um, <laughs> that would not last long. It'd be 45 minutes and we're back in Memphis. And so, um, but it's this instinct, this feeling of, of withdrawal. I want to retreat is so overwhelming to just think about um, just brutality. And it's, it's easy to just want to retreat and go somewhere safe. It's, it's easy to think, like, as much as you dump into the city and you know as much as, 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 much as different organizations and churches and nonprofits are dumping into the city, it just feels like it's just pointless sometimes. So I'm telling all this to my counselor on Wednesday afternoon that, of course, was before that night when another person terrorized our city and, ter- you know, terrorized through Midtown. And so I just woke up Thursday and just feeling like it's just a lot to take in at once. It's a lot to process what we're going through as a, as a, um, as a city and as people here. And so, and I know not, I know people are all over the map in terms of how we're responding to this, and even people in this room are kind of all over the map. I, I do sense a collective feeling of being shaken, though. I do feel like people have universally said, this has felt, this has rattled me. I feel scared, I feel afraid, I feel kind of undone by this. There's a disequilibrium, and it's not lost on me either that it's September 11th. And so even that is just another reminder of, like, we live in a world with constant reminders that terrorism and trauma and violence and pain and suffering and death and loss are not new. This is just the world we inhabit. And so when, it, when you feel it palpably in these really concentrated, unique ways, what do you do? What do you do in these dark weeks? And I want to suggest that I think we do two things. We weep and we trust. I want to look at this passage uh, from John 11 and try to show you that our response needs to be that we weep and we trust. First, we weep. This is a famous uh, story where, where Jesus is one of dear friends, Lazarus dies, and he, he was not there when it happened, and so he just kind of walks into the aftermath of this loss, and his his family and his friends have gathered, and they are grieving, and they're mourning. And so you, you, in some ways, you have kind of the perfect scenario. You have a perfect case study to ask the question, how does God feel about death and loss? You know, if, if Jesus is God in the flesh, which the Bible says, I mean, Jesus himself says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So how does Jesus, how does God respond? How does God feel about death and loss and tragedy in our world. Well, two quick observations. Here's the first thing. Verse 35, Jesus wept. He encounters death 
And the first thing he does is he weeps. He weeps. And just to be clear, he's not weeping in the way that Southerners weep. I mean, Southerners tend to be embarrassed about our tears. We tend to be reserved. You know, we get a Kleenex and we dab our cheeks. And this is not Southern crying. This is Middle Eastern crying. This is, this is, um, this is you know, you have examples of, of grief in the Bible where people tear their clothes, where people are, are beating their breasts. This is raw, unfiltered, ugly, crying kind of weeping and grieving and mourning. So Jesus weeps, and then here's the second observation. In verse uh, 33 and verse 38, it both uses this phrase that he was deeply moved. He sees people crying, and he's deeply moved. He, he goes to the tomb, and he's deeply moved. And every commentator will tell you that the English word that we have, that we're trying to translate this Greek word, deeply moved, is, is too weak. Because we don't really have a good English word to capture what that Greek word is. Because what that Greek word is, is really saying is intense indignation. It's more like rage. It's a, it's a visceral, guttural bellowing at what Jesus is, is seeing and experiencing. Because, it's, because death is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not a... Um, Death is not just a part of life. It's not just a natural thing that happens. It is a vicious enemy that Jesus hates. And so when he comes upon it, he rages against it, which is really fascinating. There's two fascinating things about this story to me. The first is that here you have God in the flesh who has entered into our pain and suffering. Jesus has plunged himself into our world, and he's allowing himself to weep and to rage and to feel the burdens and the anguish and the despair that, that you and I feel, which is fascinating because there's no other God that does this. If you look at every other religion, no other God enters in. Every other God is distant, remote, immune from the suffering that this world offers, but not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible enters in and takes on and feels all the emotional burdens that we feel, but not just our emotional pain. I mean, we know the end of the story as well. Jesus takes on and enters into physical pain and suffering too. Jesus knows what it's like to be overpowered in the night by treacherous men. Jesus knows what it's like to have his body treated with senseless violence. Jesus knows what it's like to be murdered. Jesus knows what it's like to have his, his very body treated without any regard, without any dignity, to just be thrown away like it's trash. Jesus has entered in, and God has entered in, into our suffering, into our pain. And so that's the first thing that's really fascinating. The second thing that's really fascinating about this is that here's Jesus, and he's weeping, he's raging, but we know how this story ends. We know that in like five minutes, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So if there's anybody that has a reason to not feel the weight of the sadness in this moment, it's Jesus. If there's anybody that says, hey, we can minimize this moment, we can look on the bright side because good thing is, a good thing is about to happen. If there's anybody who had a reason to do that, it was Jesus, and yet he doesn't do that. He doesn't trivialize this moment. He doesn't, he's not sentimental. He's not indifferent. He responds rightly, 
and the right response to death and to loss and tragedy are tears and anger. Which I think, here's what this means for us, that it is, it's godly to weep over tragedies. It is godly to rage at death. In fact, it's not just that, like, okay, if you feel those things, it's okay. You get a free pass. It's Christ-like to feel those things. It's Christ-like to see death and loss and suffering and tragedy and to, and to respond with tears and with rage. It's not always our first reaction, though. Um, anytime we experience something really traumatic, really intense, uh, we tend to go into fight or flight mode, you know? And so some of us, when we experience really horrible things, we, we're, we're, a, we're flight mode kind of people, which means we want to respond with action and we want to do something and we want to fix this. We want to boil this down to a lesson that we can learn so that we can gain control over our lives again. We want to do something. In fact, some of us uh, take to the internet and we go to social media and we start throwing rocks, we start throwing stones, we start blaming everybody. We blame the victim. We blame the judicial system, blame our elected leaders, blame men, blame racial injustice and uh, generational poverty in our city, fight mode. Others of us uh, tend to process by going into flight mode where we want to retreat, we want to withdraw. We think about, oh, I got to move to a different part of the city or I got to move to Sweden. We think about, uh, I've got a, uh, maybe I need to purchase pepper spray or carry a firearm. I don't feel comfortable in the streets at night. I want to stay home. And so there's this, there's this retreat mentality. And, I, and I, I get all of that. There's grace for that because we're all coping in our own ways and trying to make sense of life in a senselessly violent world. I want to encourage you to respond in the way that Jesus responds. I want to encourage you to first respond with tears and with anger. Jesus is described in Isaiah 53, verse 3, as a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. Sorrow is not immaturity. It's not you being unspiritual. It's not a sign of you don't have enough faith. Sorrow is to be Christ-like. Sorrow is what it means to feel and to look like Jesus. So that's the first thing we do. We weep. We experienced this past week and all the other tragedies that our city has experienced, and we weep. And secondly, we also trust. We trust. When, when horrible things happen, it's completely natural for us to question God. In fact, you see that in this very passage. If you look at verse 37, it says, But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? They're looking at tragedy and they're saying, Why would he have let this happen? He seems to have power. He's, he opened the eyes of these blind dudes. Why would he not stop this from happening? How could he let this happen? And it's a, it's a natural question. It's a question that... Everybody in this room, my guess, has 
asked at one point or another, when you start to butt up against loss, when you start to butt up against real pointless loss, we join the people in this passage and all the other voices throughout the Bible that look to God and cry out, why? Why? Because when you experience something that makes zero sense to you, even when you're trying to like be super spiritual and like, okay, maybe I could see some good that might come of this. But when you see something that, uh, when you just see a loss and a cruelty that feels beyond pointless and completely senseless, that's the question we ask. How could you let this happen? That's the question that comes kind of, you know, rattling through our hearts. And you can read through the Bible and you can extract general answers to that question. You can read through the Bible. The Bible gives you some general ideas why God allows suffering to happen in the world. But God doesn't really provide specific reasons for the specific tragedies that you and I experience. And anybody who tells you, this is the reason why God allowed this to happen, does not know what they're talking about. And they should be ignored. Because the answer from the Bible of why does God allow stuff like this to happen is, I don't know. And that, I know, puts us in a really difficult position because we're really, at this, at this point, forced to swallow one of two really difficult pills to swallow. Because on the one hand, we have the pill that we can swallow and we can say, God does not exist. We live in a world in which there is no God. We live in a world that is a closed system, and therefore, violence and suffering, it's random, it's chaotic, and ultimately, it's meaningless, there is no deeper point to it. It's just natural selection, which is a hard pill to swallow. Or you swallow this other pill, which is a hard pill to swallow, a hard pill to swallow which is to say uh, God does exist, and he has his reasons for allowing hard things to happen, but we don't know what they are. And so we're in the dark, and we don't know what the reasons are, but that doesn't mean that there aren't reasons. And so we have a choice. Do you want to live in a universe in which you don't have all the information, or do you want to live in a universe in which you don't have any meaning? Those are your options. And so we ask our questions to God, and we cry out to God with our questions, but what I want you to also see is that Jesus has a question for us to answer as well. If you look at uh, verse 25... Jesus is speaking to Martha, and he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? I mean, that's a, that is a fascinating question because he's inviting us to believe something that is so radical so counterintuitive, so crazy, because what he's doing is he's saying, Martha, okay, I want you to look at, um, look at this corpse. He is dead. I can do something about it. I can bring life back to this person. I can bring life into death. Do you believe that? And he's asking Martha, and he's asking us to, um, he's inviting us to believe something that flies in the face of everything that we know about reality. Because Martha and Mary, they know what you and I know, which is that death has about a 100% success rate and that it's final and that it's ultimate and that there's nothing you can do to reverse it. 
Modern medicine can't reverse it. New technological developments can't reverse it. No amount of education and justice efforts and laws and memorials can reverse it. It's too powerful. And so he's inviting Martha and Mary and us to be defiant. He's inviting for us, he's inviting us into having a defiant hope that looks in the face of something that seems incredibly obvious, but to protest against it, to say, uh, in light of everything that I know about death, Jesus can and he will do something about it. And I don't know when he will, but I know that he will. In fact, uh, here's, here's how she answers this question. Do you believe this? Here's verse 27. Yes, Lord, I believe. I trust you. That's what Christians do. That's what people who follow Jesus do. We weep in the face of death, but then we also trust Jesus that he will do something about death. Again, we don't know when. We don't know his timing. We just know that one day, someday, he will reverse it because he's the only one who can. The pain and suffering, which seem like they constantly win, constantly get the last word, that in the end they don't that we know the rest of the story. And so what does Jesus do? He doesn't just tell us, I can do something about death. He shows us. And he goes over to the tomb where the stone is placed in front of it, and he says, hey, I want you to move this stone away. And they say, Jesus, this is a bad idea. He insists. They roll the stone away. He steps into the tomb, and he calls out, Lazarus, come out. And here's this corpse, this dead man who rises and walks out, this miraculous, crazy story. And that's wonderful for Lazarus. It's wonderful for his friends and family, but that's not all that Jesus is doing. He's not just saying, look at this fun little thing I can do. He is showing you this is a, this is a sneak preview of what I am going to do with anybody who entrusts their life to me, that if they believe in me, though they die, yet they shall live again. That's verse 25. You know, people... Um, People want to believe things that are unique. We all want to be nonconformist, and um, this is why we want to. This is why we love the bands, the obscure bands that nobody else has ever heard of. We're the only ones that know about them. This is why we love the the hole in the wall restaurants that none of the tourists know about. I think this is partly why, like flat earthers, are a thing. We want to be nonconformist, and so if you want to be nonconformist, you want to be really radical, really revolutionary. Believe this. Believe that Jesus, though you die, if you entrust your life to him, he, he has the power for you to live again. That's really crazy. That is really nonconformist. That is really radical. That is defiant. That is to say, I believe something that flies in the face of almost everything that I see and experience in the world, and yet I do. I believe that he is the resurrection and the life. You want to be nonconformist, believe that. Believe that Liza Fletcher will one day run again on glorified legs down a glorified Central Avenue. Believe that God is going to take all the evil and the violence and the suffering in this world and eradicate it completely. That God is going to take the city of Memphis and heal it and restore it so that it is flourishing with no more poverty, no more injustice, no more broken social systems. 
believe that. That is a defiant hope. That is a hope, that is a trust that can look unspeakable horror in the face and weep over it and at the same time not back down from it and not give up because we know the end of the story. We know that Jesus wins. And so the question that everyone in this room has to answer is, do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection? That if you believe in him, if you entrust your life to him, though you will die, you will rise again. I'll wrap up with this, final thought. I have a friend who's a pastor in Virginia. And a number of years ago, he had this young couple start coming to this church, 23, right out of college. Um, They were, um, uh, you know, young, bright, fun-loving. He was, his name is Peter. He was um, wanting to be a missionary. Uh, His wife uh, was in uh, law school studying, training so that she could uh, try to help people get out of trafficking, human trafficking. And so they join my friend's church, and about a month after they arrive, they discover that Peter has testicular cancer. They caught it early enough. He goes to the treatment plan, and after some time, uh, they scan him, and he's, and he's clear, cancer-free. Eight months go by, and the cancer comes back. This time it has spread into his gut, And so uh, the doctors have to come in and remove part of his large intestine. He goes through another chemo treatment plan and hard, grueling few months. And next scan, next check-in, he's, you know, cancer-free. Beats cancer twice. A year and a half later, it comes back. This time it's um, spread everywhere. Peter's 24 years old at this point. His, uh, he's been married for two and a half years. The doctor tells my pastor friend that I think we're fighting a losing battle at this point. So my pastor friend kind of goes into pastor mode and really jumps in with the family and he's counseling with them and praying with them and reading scripture to them and comforting them. He meets with this, you know, 23-year-old, 24-year-old soon-to-be widow talking about her life and what in the world's even happening to her world right that right at that point. And um, Peter starts to really deteriorate towards the end. He loses 65 pounds. He's, you know, doesn't have any hair. He's just a, in the end, he's just kind of a shadow of himself. And he's talking to my friend and they're discussing funeral arrangements. And Peter says, when I die, I don't want to be buried wearing a suit I want to be buried wearing a pink T-shirt with a Yoda, a Star Wars Yoda tie around my neck. Honest truth. And my friend is like, okay, um, that's a different choice, but we can do that. And sure enough, a few weeks, however long, goes by, Peter dies, and for the visitation in the coffin casket up front. There's Peter wearing a pink T-shirt with a Star Wars Yoda tie tied around his neck. Now, why in the world did he want to be dressed like that? 
because he trusted Jesus. He believed in the resurrection. He believed that even as death is taking him, he will come back because he's connected to one who is stronger than death. And so he wanted to mock it to its face as he's dying. He wanted to thumb his nose at death as if to say, cancer, death, you may have won this time. But I'm coming back because I am connected to one who is the resurrection and the life. This week has been uniquely brutal, and it will not be the last. The question for you is, what will you do in moments of real darkness, in moments of real pain and suffering? I want to invite you to do two things, to weep and to trust, to trust Jesus with a defiant trust because you know in your heart of hearts that he wins in the end. Hallelujah. Let me pray. Father, when we are confronted with such evil and brokenness and sadness and loss, we have nowhere else to turn. I pray that you would encourage us, remind us, strengthen our faith with all of our doubts, with all of our rage, with all of our accusations against you, that even in these moments, it's so easy for us to raise our fists to you and, and accuse you of divine malpractice. You don't know what you're doing. I pray that you would meet us in our anger, meet us in our tears, meet us in our rage, and remind us of how the story ends. Help us to weep and help us to trust. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.